If you have a Bible, would you open this morning to the book of Deuteronomy again? Deuteronomy chapter 32. We were there last week. I'd like to go back there. Our subject is seeing afar off. Obviously based on the fact that once we become Christians, we have a walk to walk. We have a life to live. There is instruction that God gives us on how to live that life and where that life will lead us. It is also in the teaching about the way we're going as Christians through life, there are many warnings. There are many things that are designed by the devil to lead you astray or to make you turn to a broader way or to relax and not press in or not labor to enter into that rest, things like that. And so God gives us who say we want to follow him. He gives us not only clear instructions how to do it, but he also warns us about the dangers that lie ahead that can turn you aside, defeat you, or even destroy you if you're not careful. God doesn't prevent us from being tested. That's part of our Christian life. This is one of the ways we prove ourselves to God. But we have to be able to see from afar off. Now, in our text here, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 29, Moses said, Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their latter end. I would say it like this. A wise man is a man who pays attention, first of all, and when he's aware of the fact that what he's listening to is needed information, like as a Christian, then he begins to pursue that to do that. Because that's wisdom. Because the alternative to pursuing what God wants, well, is judgment. And if you want grace and favor on your side, then this is the way, walk ye in it. And so he says, you know, oh, that my people were wise. What do you mean by that? Well, that they would consider their latter end. Remember the other verse we used in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9? We, we've used that a lot here in the last few weeks. But he said, you know, a man who cannot see afar off is a man who is blind. He has eyes to see, and he has seen or has heard what God has said. But he doesn't continue to look that way or listen to that because something else is more desirable or more important or something else. So there comes a time in which you're seeing, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. You can just be satisfied with just being religious, having a church you go to, an experience you've had of some sort once. You just park yourself there, and that's pretty much it. Your life remains as it used to be. That's just religion. And a man who stays in that, becomes satisfied with that, wants nothing else, really does blind himself. Remember the 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said that it is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who believe not. Paul was talking about why it's hard to teach people, why people are so easily distracted, why people fall away and give up and quit and turn back because they're not paying attention. They're not seeing what God has put before them to be pursued and to be taken seriously. You know, part of Second Peter chapter 1 was about being taught, teaching. 
add to your faith this and add to this and add, 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 add. This progressive growing, or like Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, growing up into him, Christ, in all things. It's a process. It's not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's a daily life. You live and you grow. You make application of what you've heard. We're going somewhere. God is leading you somewhere. Now, you need to know where that is. At least have a picture in your mind of what you're after. Paul made it clear that the reason a lot of people will not endure to the end is because they're going to give heed to something else that will take them out of the game. And that's a tragedy today. Nobody in this room has to perish, not a single one of you. Nobody in this room has to come up short at the end of your life. Everybody here should realize that you're blessed enough with the little bit that you've heard it is enough to put you in favor with God. It only requires your will to do it. That's what we call giving heed to the word of God. And where God wants to take us is a good place. And it is good. But having eyes to see, we don't see. Having ears to hear, we have not heard. We haven't listened to all the things that he said. And so consequently, a day that we're warned about comes upon God's people unawares. Where, how, why did this happen? Well, how come this happened? Well, I don't know why I do. How come? Well, because you were warned before this day ever came. You were told that you have a, a way to walk and a way to live. And, and if you're not doing that and then something comes upon you because of it, and you say, well, what happened? What did I do? Well, the answer's always been there. You just don't see it anymore. Because you have eyes to see, but you don't see it. Or as Hebrews 5 says, you become dull of hearing. You get used to this. You acclimate yourself to a, an idea instead of a life. And God becomes a concept. You know, you see God like this, well, this, because you're living in an age in which they do that. Remember we talked last week about the signs of the times that God gives us signs so as we're walking to our goal, realizing about all the hindrances that are going to come our way, all the many illustrations and the parables and so forth about hindrances. Remember what one of the signs was that perilous times will come? Now, we've heard that a lot. We know what it, pretty much what that is. Perilous times are dangerous times, fearful times. A lot of people who thought they believed it, just trust in God, he'll take care of this, realize when things aren't going well for you and you're being put to the test, you're not all that sure that God will take care of you. You start asking questions of the wrong people. What do you think I should do? Or you start looking to the wrong sources for what should you do? And you make mistakes. God will only bless his word. You know that, don't you? So perilous times shall come. They're fierce. The word means fierce, distressing times, difficult times. A time, now notice, you get the words, the time will come. I know I said this last week, you've got to let me say this again, because we're there right now as I speak. Not in Paul's day, but he said, the time will come. A perilous time. We've always had bad people in the world. We've always had people fighting and warring, always had dissension and always had trouble. There's always been thieves and robbers in the world. There's always been threats of life and people that are, you know, hurt and abused, always. But not like in the last days. See, there's the end times and the last days. And in that time, 
as we're warned, the time which Jesus said is the beginning of sorrows. No matter what you've got, you can't enjoy it. No matter where you want to go, it doesn't please you anymore. It's a time of sorrow. The earth, as Isaiah says, begins to reel to and fro because the judgment of God is coming. God has said, that's enough. You've gone beyond the limit on planet earth. And so judgment begins. Perilous times come. These wild and fierce times when suddenly for, well, it started right after my generation. People begin to protest, begin to use language publicly that as they say it in the movies today. And then, and you read it, there, nothing is off limits anymore. Nothing is sacred anymore. Everything has changed. I use that verse in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 19, where there is no vision. My people perish. My people, God said. We know the world is perishing. But God said, where there is no vision, my people perish. And vision is a revelation, a living revelation of God. Something that God shows us that if heeded, it will keep destruction from coming to us. The world doesn't want it. Most of the church doesn't want it. Somebody wants it, and God shows it to them. But when you don't have a living revelation in your heart, the Bible says you become unrestrained. The word perish means unrestrained. No limits anymore to how evil you can be, how ugly you can talk, how vulgar you can be in public, how abusive you can act. doesn't matter what you look like, how you dress, how you talk. Everything is just ugly and nasty. A time like that has come, folks. While I'm talking, it is here now. A lot of you young folks have only known that. We weren't Christian. We certainly weren't spiritual people. But we were ingrained with the fear of God. You just didn't say some things. There are just some things you didn't do. There was a line you just didn't cross. You might have been ugly and rowdy, but there are just some things you wouldn't do. And there's just some things you wouldn't say. You wouldn't dare talk like that in public. I taught school when the only way a youngster in my class or any class, you could only speak and talk if you raised your hand and the teacher acknowledged you, then you can speak. Now today they can stand up and curse the teacher. I can't relate to that. But your kids are in a class where it happens all the time. They're used to it. For them, this is the norm. This is how it is. You watch some of these kids that were childhood little girls on TV that were cute and all of that. Then they grow up and they become nasty. And you kids watch that stuff. They put that kind of a picture on their wall. They emulate that. That's what they want to be like. And when you preach the gospel, they don't want to hear it. So they turn their ears away from it. You don't want to see it, so you turn your eyes away from it. Well, you're too old, preacher. What do you know about anything? You know what? I've been on both sides of the street. I was there when it wasn't like that. I'm there now when it is, and I'm appalled. In the 60s, when I started teaching school, I used to watch the hippie movement and the Woodstock thing. I was appalled. And the protest? I remember they protested up in Kent, Stayed up in Ohio, they shot five or six of them. That's just the way you did it. You didn't put up with that stuff. 
And then the people begin to protest, and the whole moral fiber of this nation begin to change. Everything began to change because people started saying, why should I have to abide by these old-fashioned standards? Who said we have to marry? If Joe and Bill want to marry, who says we can't do it? And they start talking that kind of talk, that logic and reason of this age, the kind of stuff that's espoused in schools and in the educational system. Be yourself. Be all that you can be and take a stand. And, do it. and people begin to think like that. And as a man thinketh, so he is. The whole system has changed. The people that started running our country grew up in the Vietnam era. Men my age are senators. And the people right after me are, well, presidents and all that. They were warped by the whole thing. We've come to a time when I don't think it can go back. I think it is setting itself up in the last days for judgment. And perilous times are here. They really are here. There's a fear like you haven't seen. Men's hearts are failing them because of fear. People that have all the luxuries of life are afraid they're going to lose it. Toting guns. Somebody told me the other day, said, you know, you, uh, you can carry a gun in church if you want to. Nobody else can, but you can carry one in there. I said, what would I do with it? Shoot the ones that are not paying attention? <laughs> what am I going to do with a gun? Well, somebody could walk in and shoot you. Then I'm going home. Well, there's just a lot of crazy people. Of course they're crazy. It's the last days. We were told that I can see that afar off. And it's getting closer. It's coming. Think it not strange, he said. We're in that time right now as I'm speaking. I'm just calling your attention to it. The church has lost its whole vision. What about holiness? What is that? Is that still in the Bible? It's a nothing word anymore. Love and kindness and gentleness and meekness. and ten- That's nothing anymore. Nobody's like that because what you see on TV and today is big, bad bullies. Big, muscular somethings that hurt people. They never smile, and they get in cages with each other, and they try to jump off the ceiling and break tables over each other's heads. And football players like to hurt people. You're in the age. That's what your kids, your little boys, think is the way they should be. And a boy that wants to be meek and kind, you teach your kid to turn the other cheek. Oh, you make a sissy out of him. No. I want to make a citizen of God's kingdom out of him. I want to teach him that what you're seeing is the warping of the moral fiber of our country and the destruction of a whole generation of kids. A whole generation. And as we'll get to in just a moment, the, the religious system has played into this thing. So last week we talked about perilous times. So let me give you another sign. This is more prominent and disturbing to me than the perilous times and how it's affected so many of God's people, who are without a revelation, incidentally. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you turn to that? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, another disturbing sign that you must see this coming and not just acknowledge it by memorizing these words or saying, yeah, I've heard that, but understand what it's saying. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, talks about that man of sin 
the Antichrist. Daniel speaks of him quite a bit. He said, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, that's the day of the Lord, that end time last day, that day shall not come except. Now notice, the day of the Lord, this time of judgment on this earth, will not come except or unless what happens. This is, a clue. This is how we can know as Christians, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, talking about the Antichrist. Again, Daniel speaks of him a lot in chapter 7 and 12. But that day shall not come except, and that, that day has not come, but it's coming now, except there come a falling away first. Now, when I used to think of falling away, I used to think of a people who just quit church. They used to come, they quit coming. They used to go, they quit going. They used to be a Christian in some sense, some way, but they gave it up and went back to staying home, living the way they used to live, and they just quit. The word falling away is from the Greek word, which means apostasy. It means literally to fall away, to fall back. One translator says, willful abandonment. See, I fall away because I choose to fall away. I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm falling away. I can't help myself. No, sir. I evaluated my life, what I'm doing with it, how it's being affected by church, religion, and people. Not having an especially good day, not really doing good. So I'm sitting back one day, and the devil said, you know, if you look at how you're living and, and all this religious activity you're involved, you know, it's not helping you any. You're no better. You don't feel any better. You don't look any better. You're certainly not doing better. Why would you keep pursuing something that's leading you nowhere? That's the way the devil talks. Because we live in a day of instant Results, no money down, drive through, you know, right now. And so when God speaks of a far off, he says, this, the blessing that I've given you is coming. But the devil says, well, you know, where is it? You're not doing so good. I mean, you're just not doing so good. Look, you got problems here, you got problems here, you got financial problems, you got, well, spiritual problems. And it seems like you go to church and it's just dead. Why would you keep doing that? Now, this is what happens when a person gives himself to that kind of thinking. He doesn't see that the problem is himself. The problem is somebody else. You're victims, I guess. So you begin to willfully consider not doing this anymore, or at least not like this. Or if the pressure keeps coming, you can do this just as well as somewhere else. Just go somewhere else where you don't have to do anything except just come and contribute, and that's all they expect. That's the way you start thinking. That's the kind of stuff the devil puts in your mind. This word willful abandonment means you willingly did that. That was a choice I made. I don't want any more of this. I don't want to keep doing this. I'm tired of hearing the same, same old, same old. So you go to something else. It's a withdrawal. One translation said it's a defection from what was once believed. Now, I can relate to that. 
Because when you tell me that falling away doesn't mean for some people they quit going to church. It just simply means they quit believing what they were taught to believe and found something else to believe. A willful defection. A willful turning away from what was once believed. Why would you do that? Well, prayer didn't get answered. Somebody didn't get healed. Somebody died. That child you're praying for, you know, the marriage you're praying about, it's not working. It's just not working. So you begin to defect. You begin to withdraw, turn aside, turn away, draw back from what you once believed. We're living in a time in which I've been watching this for 20 years. People who used to be on fire for God, they were hot, brother. I mean, they were witness at the drop of a hat, and they carried a hat around. Many of them were preachers. Oh, you would thought as fire and brimstone was invented by these guys. Passion. And it wasn't just a few years. When these end time begin to close in, and the signs of the time begin to come forth, and even though you'd heard what was going to happen, they, they don't even cope with it. They just backed off and gave up themselves. It's a falling away, not from religion or religious exercises. People are religious by nature. Even savages are religious. They worship something, a stick, a rock, or something. But they know there is a something out there that should be acknowledged. Whether it's a totem pole or a little obese Buddha, there's something that ought to be given obedience to. They know that naturally. Man is by nature a religious creature. He is made in the image of God. And so he doesn't see things the way he wants it to be seen. He doesn't know it the way God wants him to know it. He gets distracted. He lets his time and his mind wander. He starts listening to other people with other views. Too many radio stations got too many views, folks. Begins to look for an easier way. And he backs off. He stays religious. And I'll say this, if you keep the heat on, if you preach instant in-season or out-of-season, if you keep the heat on, a lot of these people don't want to hear that anymore. I'm not talking about bad people. I'm talking about good people. They just don't want to struggle and fight anymore. So they look for some other place, some easier place they can go and, and feel good and better about themselves. And there's this end-time falling away. Again, I'm talking about not from religion and not from filling churches full. There's more churches full of people now than any time in history. And there's fewer people, I would imagine, who really believe what the Bible says than at any time in history. And you have to wonder, what good is it to fill it up with people that are going to be judged? But we think because of the logic and reason of this age, hey, God knows we're just normal. We're human. We're not supermen. Nobody can be perfect. Hey, you're going to church, you're trying. I mean, at least you're not sitting home drinking beer. I mean, we're in church. Come on, that's got to count for something, doesn't it? And we see that as qualifying you to be good enough to go to heaven. 
Because when it comes to heaven and hell, nobody thinks they're going to hell because I'm not that bad. I don't do what bad people do. Bad people are going to hell. Terrorists are going to hell. I'm not that bad. I mean, surely, surely God Almighty, I mean, whoever he is and all that, surely. So they continue to live their own life, thinking more highly of themselves than they should, and they're perishing. And you tell them they're perishing, and the first response is anger. Who do you think you are? Well, I don't think much of myself, tell you the truth, but I know that what I'm telling you is true. They go back to a religious system. Let me tell you how you can define a religious system that's not right. It's very clear. Go over to 2 Timothy. A couple of books over. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. This is how you can define a system, a religious system that's not right. And I have a right to say it's not right. Don't send me a note. Why do you keep talking about? Because it's, it's in the Bible to talk against error. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power of it. You see that? They have a form. What's the form? Well, it's the accepted standard. We go to church. We read the Bible. We teach the Bible. We give. We're water baptized. Uh, we help missions. We go on mission. We just do the standard. This is what is set before us as if you do this, you're in. Nothing there seems to be personal about me, how I relate, how I'm doing, how is my heart before God. It's just sort of an us thing. He said they have a form of godliness, but notice they deny what? The power of it. It's another study for you preachers coming up. A good subject for you to study. A good sermon. We'd all like to hear. What is the power of godliness? In what way does godliness give, bring, produce power? Power to do what? Power to be what? Power to become what? Power how? Because it's severely lacking in a dead religious system. They have a form of godliness. Godliness, Eusebio, has to do with a right, true relationship with God. On God's term. They have a form of that. They sing the right hymns, they raise their hands, or they clap their hands. They might do all the things you think they should do. But they deny the power of it. They not only do not trust God for that promised power, they're not even sure it really works like that. They've never seen it. When did I ever see that work? Who's ever benefited from the power of God in my life? So they begin to question that. They begin to change their theology to fit their experience. It becomes a man-made theology. It's man preaching to man the way man sees what God is and what God said. And man is always like man's way better than God's way. So they become people followers. They have itching ears. Isn't there something in the Bible about itching ears? This verse you're reading in verse 5 is in the context of verse 1. 
perilous times. He begins to describe the age that you're in, the boasting. <laughs> Professional athletes are good. I say it all the time. They pay them $5 million to tackle somebody. And then when they tackle somebody, they want to put on a show at halftime. Look at me. Look what I did. Give me a microphone. Look at how I dress. It's all about self. And to preach the cross to that crowd, you're wasting your time. So he said they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. They don't believe it. It's a faith problem. I doubt they've ever been taught how to access or believe God for his power. They've heard it. They don't deny it as far as being in the Bible. They just deny it that it's real, that it works. That might have been for another age. Maybe that crowd was right. Those things have passed away. It's not for today. So they found a system where you don't have to believe anything. If you have to believe anything, then salvation includes works. That's what man says. If you have to do anything as a Christian, then you're adding to your salvation, which is by grace. And they fail to see that when you're saved by faith, if faith is how you're saved, by grace, through what? Faith always, it always shows action. It always does something. If it doesn't do something, it's what's dead faith. What James 2 said, I'm not trying to get saved as a Christian. I could never do anything to get saved. God had to do all the getting for me. And when I believe what Jesus did for me and salvation was given to me, I want to make my calling and election sure. I want to live to please him because I love him. I'm not trying to get saved. I want to demonstrate by the way I live that I really am saved. There's nothing wrong with that. But if I can find myself a quiet little atmosphere, I can sit in on Sunday and bring my children. It doesn't last as long as this place does. They don't yak all morning. And it's just a quiet service we can get out of there. At least we don't ask you for your money. So if I can get out of there, nothing's required of me, and I'm made to feel okay, no matter how I'm living, give me that. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. I would call it a dead religious system. I would. You know why I would call it dead? Because it's not alive. You know why it's not alive? Because it's not of God. The hymns, the songs, Jesus is in every sermon. The hymns talk about great is thy faithful, all of that. That's good. That's not something that comes out of the heart. That's just a religious format. That's the routine. That's the system. But as for life changing, that's up to me. I do it if I want to. And I have my own rights. Don't we all have our own right to do what we want to do? If I want to get rid of this thing growing inside of me, this, what they call a fetus. I don't have to keep that if I don't want it. We've only killed 59 million of them since 1973. No big deal. I'm my own boss. I'll go to a church that doesn't say anything against that. Then I feel good about myself. You're in the last days while you're sitting here. 
you're in a time in which people are being lulled into sleep. A time when the watchmen on the wall are described by Isaiah as dumb dogs that cannot bark. They see the warnings coming and they don't warn the people because they don't want to alarm the people. They want people to be happy. We want you to be comfortable and happy here. We don't want you to get stirred up. And human beings like that. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul said, don't preach the word so hard. You know what he said? Read it. Preach the word. In light of chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, in, in light of all of that, in the last, preach the word, Timothy. This is the only way God will ever save people. It's by the word. You're born again, not of corruptible seed, but by what? The incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Paul said in Romans, how can they believe if they haven't heard the word? How can they hear unless somebody is sent? But don't send anybody that doesn't believe. All he does is make it worse. So he says, preach the word. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Then he said, reprove, ooh, rebuke, ooh, exhort, ooh, there goes your tape sales. With all long-suffering and doctrine. People don't like that. A few will. You do. I pray you do. Verse 3. For the time will come. Apparently, when he wrote this, it had not happened. But seeing afar off, he said, this is what will happen. And I would add, towards the end. He said that they will not endure sound doctrine. The people that are preaching it anyway. But after their own lust, self, after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And notice verse 4. It's a progression. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside unto myths, fables, and man-made stories. And people love that. You read the last couple of verses in Jeremiah chapter 5. You don't have to turn to it now, but you make a note. He said, the priests bear rule by their own means and this and that. He said, and my people love to have it so. My people. But then he asked the last verse, he said, but what will they do in the end? When it's over, you're not breathing anymore. You lived your life. Your turn came. It's gone. And when it's over, you stand before God. No lawyers. You're there with what you did with your life. It's you and God. You made the bad decisions. A just and righteous God gives you a just and righteous judgment. What you wanted, you got. And what you got, he judged. And those of us who escape judgment and are blessed, we only made it because of grace. If he hadn't have turned our lives around and when he did what he did back when he did it, we would have been with him. And he spared us from the wrath to come and so forth. Now, concerning all of this about the end time, turn to Galatians chapter 4. Go back to the left just a little bit, a little bit. Galatians chapter 4. 
Look at verse 8. Now, the Galatians were not doing well. Paul labored with this church to get them going. He poured his life, his energy, and his time. He called it, I have labored among you. Labor means to exhaust yourself. I gave you my very best I've got. What God gave me, I labored to make you see it. So he said, Galatians 4, verse 8, Howbeit then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. We all did that. We served whatever was out there. Maybe it's that old dead church we were in. But now, verse 9, after you have known God, then it's kind of like a pause, isn't it? Or rather are known of God. God knows you. I don't know if you know him anymore or not, but he knows you. But anyway, how do you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements wherein you desire again to be in bondage? That stuff used to control you. You couldn't break away from a dead religious system. You just memorized certain forms and functions and things, and you went out saying that. You didn't even know why. And a lot of us, when we came out of something that had just settled us in and bound us to a chair or a pew, we realized how much we had missed all these years. Nobody had ever taught us. Nobody ever cared to teach us. Because the system was a clock on the wall. You get 25 minutes of sermons with the bulletins and the song and the announcements and that, and that's it. Your religious duty for the week is done. Wednesday night is always an option. This is proven by the attendance. And it was dead. We came out of that and realized how we had been held down by death. Went through deliverance. Asked God in Jesus' name to deliver us from all the ill effects of our religious past and all the deadness that we were taught to accept as truth. And in the name of Jesus, we command this thing to leave us. We dismiss ourselves from its effect and so forth. And then everything became new. We started all over, walking in the newness of life. Everything was new. Our church hated it. We finally had to leave. You can't put new and old. Old and new don't mix. I think most of you are here because of this. You left wherever you lived and whatever business you had, some of you. Drove across state lines to find this place. Because where you were, you were not free to worship God in the way he was showing you how to worship him. And if you spoke in tongues or something of that sort, you were considered to be a, a mongrel of some sort. And you couldn't do that without people making fun of you and mocking you. <laughs> Like Lot's son-in-laws mocked him when he said, this place is going to go down. <laughs> you live in that day. And you come out of all of that, and you no longer could feel free to talk to anybody. Nobody wanted to understand you. So you had to leave. Met in basements, homes, garages, attics, wherever we could meet if somebody of like precious faith. So we could open up and enjoy and talk about what we believe and discuss the word and its meaning, and pray for each other. We never did that in the old church. Never. 
Suddenly everything is changing. God's information is coming. Degree by degree, little by little, here a little, he's given us some information so we can begin to see things we've never seen before. And in order to continue this way, we had to come out. We had to. Couldn't stay in that system. The preacher didn't want us in it. Even so much as saying almost, we could translate it, we would say, I wish you people that think you're so much better than everybody else would get out of here. And I think, well, we're willing to get out of here, but I'll make a correction. We do not think we're better than anybody. I'm only better than I used to be. So we left. Didn't know what to do. It was strange. What are we going to do? Well, let's got a guitar. Got a ukulele. You know how to hit a certain note? Yeah. Well, bring it. Thy loving kindness. And we just did what we knew to do. Who's going to preach? I don't know. Can you share something? I guess. And start sharing things, and God would move. God would take a little 20-minute discussion and make a week's conversation out of it. Whoa. Let's do it again. So we did it again. Then we started learning other little groups that felt the same way we did. They had to come out from among them and be separate. They had to do that. And they were glad we left, to put it both ways. And Paul said in Galatians, he said, look at chapter 5 and verse 7. He said, you were running well. You were doing well. You were running well. What happened to you? Now go back to chapter 4 again. Back to verse 9. Why do you want to go back to that old dead system? Because a lot of them did. A lot of people that I know had quit this way, left their basements and their homes and go back in some structured system that they had to go through deliverance when they came out of it and they gone back in it. And he asked them in this book right here, he said, why would you turn again to such weak and beggarly elements? There was nothing there for you then. There's nothing there now. You're back to observing days. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Observing days. We don't observe days. Does anybody observe days? Well, you know, Halloween maybe, or St. Patrick's Day, or maybe Easter. Verse 10, you observe days and months and times and years. A lot of Christian groups in this hour think that they're more religious when they observe Jewish days and Jewish customs and Jewish years. All of that stuff is passed away. The law could never make them right or better then, and practicing the same stuff today doesn't make you more right or better today. It's gone. Just do it. You don't have to pronounce Jesus Yeshua. Just say Jesus. That's English. Amen. Just say Jesus. You're not more spiritual. Yeshua. How about just Jesus? Jesus. And he said, verse 11. Would you all read that with me? Don't read it out loud, but just read it as I read it. I am afraid of you, lest what? I have bestowed upon you my labor in vain. What good has it done? Look at what you've gone back to doing. You came out of stuff and you were delivered and happy and joy. Now you've gone back to the same stuff. What if I said, you used to be quiet and you go to church 
holy, holy. We used to sing coming into Christian church, the Lord is in his holy temple. Remember that? You ever did that? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. Quatch. Then we're back there chugging, want to get our hands up and, you know, aggravating the whole church. And then go back again to chapter 5. He said, you were running well. You were doing all right. You were trying. I know it wasn't easy, but you stayed with it. Then he said, who did hinder you? Somebody did. You let somebody talk to you. You listened to something besides God. Because if you left what God had taught, you're following what somebody else taught. He said, who did hinder you? The Greek word for hinder, they said, is likened to running in a race in which some abusive runner is elbowing and shoving his way to get through there. It's a picture of somebody that knocks you off the track or knocks you out of the way. Who did hinder you? In what way were they hindered? Finish the verse. That you should what? What about you preachers over here? What did he say that you should not what? Obey the truth. Is that what the devil's after? I'm asking you. Devil doesn't mind religious systems and religious structures, religious gatherings and religious meetings. He doesn't mind all the noise. But what he doesn't want is for the people to believe. Let everybody believe what they want to. Have faith in themselves. See it your way. Nobody has a right to tell you what to believe except God. And so everybody's going in different directions. Nobody wants to just trust God because, well, you know, I just don't see it that way. Well, you're all right then. Not according to the Bible. Paul said, who hindered you? I'm talking about seeing afar off, folks. This is coming. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Who told you you don't have to obey the truth? Who told you I don't have to obey anything? I'm free. Who told you that? Doesn't the Bible tell us that without faith we can't please God? Doesn't the Bible say he that believeth in Mark 16 and is baptized shall be saved? Shall be is shall be. Receiving the end of your faith. Second Peter, he said, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do we have to believe to the end? At what point then in my Christian life is it no longer required for me to believe? No time. By the time I put my hand in the plow, I must believe that he is and that he will reward those who diligently seek him. I must believe that. That is not an option. That's a must. He that cometh to God, Hebrews 11, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, I don't have to diligently seek God. Who taught you that? I don't have to trust God. Who taught you that? Who told you that? What superior, intelligent human being told you that? What greatly advanced, scholarly somebody told you you don't have to obey the Lord? If we don't have to obey him, why teach on things we should do? Let's just stay home. 
going to heaven anyway, aren't we? Doesn't matter, does it? Does to me. I still believe I have to keep my hands on the plow. I still believe I'm not allowed to look back like Lot's wife did and go back. I still believe that I must labor to enter into that rest. I must still believe that I must live in such a way as to be counted worthy to escape this day of judgment that's coming. I've got to believe that. But that's clear to me. That's been made clear to me. Somebody doesn't want to see that. They just don't pay attention to it. See, what I'm telling you is in these last days, in the time that we're in, God is trying to show us that the way of escape is his way. But in Galatians 3 and verse 1, it's up to you. Paul's question is, oh, foolish Galatians, why were they foolish? Well, we just read two verses in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Oh, foolish Galatians, he said, who has bewitched you? Well, again, bewitched you in what way? Finish the verse. That you should not obey the truth. There it is again. Is he emphasizing the importance of faith? Should we? Should we make a big deal out of something like that? Because the devil's totally against it. You know how we resist the devil? By faith. Resist the devil, he shall flee from it. Whom resist in the faith? If you don't have any faith, if you're not really sure, if God's word is, you know, well, man, if it's like that, you don't have any faith. Faith is when I know in whom I have believed. I am persuaded that what he said he will do, and I'm unwilling to change direction. And we look like fools, even to some Christians. But that's their problem, not ours. How's this going to happen? Go to 1 Timothy 4. How's this going to happen? And you're familiar with this. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. And in the latter times, in the latter times, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, here we are again at a time not then, but a time now. So it's current right now. This is one of the signs that some shall depart from what? The faith. It's happening, folks. Listen to me. It is happening. Giving heed to what? You know this one by heart. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. So you'll have to agree with me that a seducing spirit in a man is a man who is a minister. Would you agree with me that ministers are controlled, in this case, by seducing spirits? That what they are preaching is a way of turning you from the Lord to whom you've been espoused? See, the word seducing, it has sexual overtones to it. A woman who's trying to lure a man into her place, she does all the stuff that she does to lure him away, make him attracted to her, violate his marriage. She's a seductress. She puts on whatever she does to lure him away. That's what the devil does to you. Paul says we're all engaged right now the Lord. The marriage hasn't taken place yet. It's just the time the bride's proven herself right now. It's when we get a chance to prove that we're worthy to be his bride. 
a part of that company. Your loyalty will be questioned and tested and see if you can stand as somebody who really is looking for him to come. And the devil knows if you stand by faith, he has no access to you. So he begins to do his thing, draw you aside, draw you away. And the way he does that is with words, clever words. Remember, Paul said, I have not come to you with cleverly devised fables. In 1 Peter 4, he said, I did not come to you with speech enticing words of wisdom, of man's wisdom. Remember that in 2 Corinthians? I came to you with plain speech, he said. What you see is what you get. Flawed as it may look, speech is contemptible, they said. Bodily stature is weak, but he was the man that God gave them to declare to them. Some of them couldn't receive it because they're people followers. He's not worth following. Others were impressed in their spirit by the word he spoke, and they knew it was God. But men lure people away. Maybe they are skillful orators. Maybe they have the kind of personality that you just love. Maybe they're so this and that, and, and they preach this way and that way, and yet they're misleading you. Can that happen? Could I not say things to you if I was of the ilk to do it? Leave out things that you wouldn't like so you might like me? Or so we could get more members? And if I do that, am I not wrong? Because I'm cutting short what God wants to say for my own sake. I want to be admired. I want to be thought of. If the system I'm in... They see how well I'm doing here. They'll send somebody over here, maybe lure me to their church. They offer me more money, a better parsonage, a better place to go, and a better salary. As the preacher saying, I'm for sale. I am for sale. Offer me more, and I'll bid this crowd goodbye. Thank you for the good times. Do you think if that is true, that people are being misled? They are. Seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Evil spirits don't leave Jesus out of the message. They don't leave quoting the Bible out of their message. The devil can quote the Bible. It's just that they tell you, well, you know, I know God said that, but don't you think? And here we go. Here was man's wisdom. You know, it's true that the Bible, the Bible says this about that in the Sermon on the Mount, but Let's be reasonable. Do you really think that God meant for us to, you know, the Adam and Eve thing? Eve, you know, come on. You won't die if you eat that fruit. Huh? I mean, a lovely thing like you, only one of your kind. Come on. Come on. Human nature being what it is, people like that. People like to be enticed. They do. They, they like to be enticed for somebody to give a false impression to them that make you feel so warm and fuzzy. I just love you so much. <laughs> Ooh, it just makes me go all over. Preachers get on the TV set and they start talking that way about money. You know who the people that probably give the most? is the people that don't have it. The widows. 
the people that want so much to have that kind of God you're talking about in their life. And if it takes money to get that, they'll give what they have. And the guy doesn't care a thing about those people. He's just all for me. You're living in a day which has never been like it is right now because of the media. I mean, the world can access any pulpit it wants to if it got a camera in it. All over the world at one time. And if I can impress you and put on a show for you and make you think I'm really something, oh, you'll probably give me what I asked for. I don't know that you would. You don't have to. You know that. But I'm just saying that a lot of people are out for filthy lucre. People preach for that. By the bigger salary, the better place. It's all about money. What comes out of their mouth is not what God wants people to hear, but what man wants people to hear. And folks, we got a religious system in the last days, as I'm speaking to you right now, the last days that is so corrupt. It's just a mess. It's just a mess. And it's going to get so bad with this continued change of people's mind. And you all call it paradigm shift. I call it paradigm because you cannot pronounce digimdine. And I'm from Kentucky, so I call it paradigm. But there's a shift going on in the way even sometimes you let yourself think. And when this Antichrist figure comes, he'll come on the scene in such a way that he is certainly not religious. In fact, he said when he sits on the throne, he'll speak great swelling words against God and set himself up as God, and people will bow to him. And he said, if it were not for the coming of the Lord, even the elect would be deceived. It's going to be that good. I'm telling you today, don't believe anything you hear from anybody unless it's confirmed in the word of God, here or anywhere. And if they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no light, any of them. And just remember, Satan can turn himself into an angel of light. He can transform himself into into something spiritual. The devil can stand in a pulpit and people never know it. They just don't pay attention to what he's saying. And in closing, I remember back in the prophetic age, in the early 1990s, the prophets were in America. They called themselves prophets. And I was one of those kind of people that irritate people. Because I would hear them say, boy, did you hear that? Well, I'd say, well, let me, let, let me hear it again. Let me listen to the tape. Oh, blah, 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 blah. I'd listen to the tape and come back and say, I can't follow that. This man doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to how I relate to God. He just uses religious cliches, statements and sayings and ideas and high-sounding phrases. And you think it's spiritual because of the way that it's said. Woo! And you think that's God because of all of this. It's just a show in the flesh. Let me tell you something, folks. When God starts speaking to us that way, you'll tremble. You won't sit there and go, you'll go, mm, because it is with fear and trembling that we're going to enter into the kingdom. You know that. In closing, would you look just for a brief, brief moment in Isaiah chapter 24. This is worth two sermons. But let me just brief it so you can read it later. Isaiah chapter 24. 
an end times chapter. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 4 and 5, the whole chapter, you have to read it all. It begins with the Lord's going to make the earth empty. He is coming in fury on this earth. And verse 4 and 5, the earth mourneth and fadeth away, and the world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. That's a sermon that we don't have time to explain. In verse 6, the world is in turmoil. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell in are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and fewer left. The new wine mourneth. Divine languishes, all the merry-hearted do sigh. The earth is under judgment. And verse 9, social turmoil. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. Can't even enjoy that. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up and no man may come in. It's perilous times. There's crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. The city is left desolate, and the gate is smitten with destruction. In verse 12, the city is smitten with destruction. But the gospel will be preached, verse 14. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, and they shall cry aloud in the sea. This gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, must be preached where? Throughout the world. Some will do that. Some will do that. And in closing, the great tribulation comes in verse 21, and Jesus comes for his people. Verse 22, and they shall be gathered into the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days, they shall be visited. And the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion. And in Jerusalem. Let me tell you something. Looking down the road, seeing ahead, trouble, tribulation, and turmoil is coming on this earth. I know we've all got plans for our tomorrows and all of our this or that. You better keep in the forefront of your mind today that the Lord's coming. And the only thing that's important is for you to be ready when he appears. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus. I ask you to bless your word to your people. You brought us here to show us your way. It's the work of your spirit to open our eyes and ears and hearts to not only see what you're saying, but to be moved and to make preparation. I ask you in Jesus' name to bless those that are here, bless those that listen, that we take to heart what you've said, that we might be spared from the wrath to come and escape the days that are ahead. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us go. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he has come.
He has come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the so let us go, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And He has come, He has come to us like the rain, like the spring rain. 